0: Can you think of a single instance where a Hindu scholar did a serious study on Islamic texts during this period when everyone was studying other texts to try and understand what's its doctrinal basis, doctrinal basis, how it influences the religious views and behavior of Muslims and the bearing it has had on their native civilization after 500 years of invasions, not a single Hindu. Hindus have failed completely in tracing the Islamic and Christian behaviour patterns back to their system of beliefs. And this lack of intellectual rigour has been the characteristic of Hindus all through till this day. There was the rare notable exceptions among Hindus who studied Islam and had the intrepidity to state candidly what Islam stands for, but they were hounded and suppressed by the Indian government and silenced by the overbearing judiciary, Their works impounded and banned so as to have the public still largely in dark about these courageous bids to get the bull by the horns. And the strongest of these bids was the Calcutta Quran petition. No law court can deny to infidels the right to know what treatment the Quran prescribes for them at the hands of the believers. This was a quote by Sita Ram Goel in the context of the Calcutta Quran petition. I begin with an anecdote from history, which is my favorite subject. In 1582, Emperor Akbar proclaimed the Din Ilahi or the Tawhid Ilahi, as it was also known, which was uh, one could say a prototype of a secular constitution, whereby the ruler had attempted to build a small circle of loyal followers who would be devoted to the crown forsaking religious allegiances. He then invited courtiers from his most trusted closest group to accept the new code. When he called upon Man Singh, his nephew, to profess this new creed, Man Singh refused, replying, if discipleship means willingness. To sacrifice one's life. I have already carried my life in my hand. What need is there for further proof? But if it had any another meaning and refers to faith, I am a Hindu. And now he says, if you order me, so I will become a Muslim. But I know not of the existence of any other religion than these two. This single declaration from Man Singh conveys in it the biggest folly of Hindus as a nation. The last sentence of the quote, if you order me, he tells Akbar, if you order me, I will become a Muslim, but I know not of the existence of any other religion than these two, which is Hinduism and Islam. The single declaration from Man Singh conveys in it the biggest folly of Hindus as a whole. Man Singh clearly saw no difference between Islam and Hinduism seeing it merely as a consequence of birth or inclination. And it was at that time of history already five centuries since Islamic invasions had ravaged this land. And that was the time for the first time since the Islamic onslaught when Akbar's liberal policies had infused an air of religious tolerance and freedom. And there was a lot of intellectual exchange texts of various religions were translated in various languages. Muslim studies Hindu scriptures, many other Christian studies Islamic scripture, and they wrote treatises on the uh, native beliefs. There was critical analysis of various creeds, and in discussions, at least in court before the emperor, scholars could freely criticize Islam, which incidentally some Christian missionaries also did. From several indicators, it can be made out that Hindus at this time had become bold enough to assert themselves to reclaim and rebuild their previously alienated sacred spaces, fearing no prejudice of the rulership. And going by the testimony of some Muslim writers, they were even powerful enough to have in some cases demolished the Islamic structures standing on the sites of previously destroyed temples and built their temples over it. Can you think of a single instance where a Hindu scholar did a serious study on Islamic texts during this period when everyone was studying other texts? To try and understand what's its doctrinal basis, doctrinal basis, how it influences the religious views and behavior of Muslims, and the bearing it has had on their native civilization after 500 years of invasions, not a single Hindu. It was not that they could not perceive the market difference in the civilizational values. They talked about it, whether from a point of knowledge or from impressions or loose ideas. But no sustained scholarship of note was ever taken up by any Hindu to delve into the underlying ideology of Islam, in spite of centuries of being subjected to its genocidal ruthlessness and implicable bigotry. Hindus have failed completely in tracing the Islamic and Christian behavior patterns back to their system of beliefs. And this lack of intellectual rigor has been the characteristic of Hindus all through till this day. I can only think of two notable exceptions. One was, of course, Swamidayan Saraswati. He studied Islamic uh, doctrine to a great extent, but he did not really write a very lengthy treatise on it. And the second one was Rajaram Ram Mohanroy, who wrote the very first philosophical, he studied the monotheistic principle in his work the Tohfati Muaydin, but uh, he faced a lot of flack also because of criticism, because of criticizing uh, Islamic fundamentalism. But in the last seven decades, since India's independence, This ignorance has actually been fostered, the scrutiny of Islam actively impeded by the secular Indian state and enforced with a tyranny that can be rivaled only by an Islamic state itself. There was the rare notable exceptions among Hindus who studied Islam and had the intrepidity to state candidly what Islam stands for, but they were hounded and suppressed by the Indian government and silenced by the overbearing judiciary. Their works impounded and banned so as to have the public still largely in dark about these courageous bids to get the bull by the horns. And the strongest of this, these bids was the Calcutta Quran petition. Although this fact is left out of the general narrative, the one portrayed in the dominant media, academia, and the assumptions on which our state policy is based, and it is also politically incorrect to speak it out according to the completely hypocritical standards of the international stage. But it is widely felt that Muslims are a troublesome community, whether in Muslim dominated lands or as a minority in non-Muslim countries. In the recent protests against the CAA legislation, we have before our eyes the most glaring example of the disruptive potential of this community. Their characteristic response to act as a block, implicable to reason once they have been roused to the call of Islam. It is true that the call in case of the CAA protest was not really given out in the, on the face of it in the name of Islam. And various other groups went along with this cause: <coughs> leftists, secularists, Christians, Sikhs, many Hindus as well, the blind, the ignorant, the plain, stupid Hindus, which incidentally is a very big demographic amongst us. We will not go into the details of their motivations, but all this does not change the fact that this was a massive mobilization to fight the Indian state. It was essentially a call to Muslims to rise against the Kafir regime. The reason was incidental. It was or rather is a war declared on non-Muslims. What is this war? This war is called Jihad. It is ongoing and most non-muslims are clueless about it mm-hmm. we will discuss discuss this concept of islam in a little more detail and how it plays out at a later point in this link but for now let us take a look at why it is so easy to work up muslims to a frenzied mob in the name of islam rioting burning looting killing raping the commitment to the cause above every worldly gain or good of muslim men as well as women the old the children we have seen visuals of this all during the CA protests. It is a never-ending supply, mothers ready to sacrifice babies, willing to send their children into war zones, and if they happen to get killed, even their dead bodies are used for the cause of Islam, paraded among a ceremonial show of chest beating and wailing, all to perpetuate the set out narrative. What ideology is this that creates the psychology programmed automatons? Bereft of normal human aspirational and emotional index. The answer lies in the fundamental religious ideas that they are indoctrinated in from the very moment of their gaining consciousness. But let us now take a look at what happened when an Indian attempted to bring this out in the open and challenge the immunity granted to Islam's holy book in the name of secularism. And the imposition of the Indian state on non Muslims' freedom of speech restraining them from questioning or criticizing Islam and Muslims. Says Sita Ram who compiled the facts and documents uh, of the uh, documentation of the Calcutta Quran petition into a book of the same name. The Hindu intelligentsia in India in general and the present day Hindu leadership in particular had yet to show any sign that they have learnt any lesson from what is essentially a renewed contest between Islamic imperialism and Indian nationalism. This is a shlok from the Vasishth Smriti. It says, agnido garadash chayva dhanapaha kshetradara apaharta cha And this means, this lists the characteristics of gangsters. And this is what it says, that the one who sets fire to other people's properties, he who poisons other people, he who wields weapons for the with the intention of hurting other people, he who robs other people's wealth, he who forcibly occupies other people's lands, and he who forcibly carries away other people's women—these six are the signs of gangsters. In the smritis, in the Hindu smritis, such people are to be eliminated without consideration. The one who has come to harm you in such ways. Should be eliminated without consideration. This is part of the same Vashishta Smriti. The Gita also says, means a king should slay them without a second thought. But what if there is a set of ideolo- a theology in which these same acts of gangsterism were spelt out as the highest? acts of highest merit, ordained by an authority no less than God himself, that earns one a place among the hallowed apostles, prophets and saints of all times, and sends one in the hereafter to a paradise of unending pleasures. We made such a tradition in the Bible, at least in the Old Testament and the Quran. And the second of these not only advocates these acts as pious, but elaborates on them at length with gory details. These traditions also prescribe punishments, but not for those committing these acts of gangsterism, but for those who resist them, do not subscribe to their ways and participate in them as wretched enough to be put to death. But the thing is, who will speak out on this? These are three provisions of the Indian Penal Code, which are the favourites of Muslims in India. Muslims love these. because. They can use it very effectively. The first of this 153a specifies the offense of promoting enmity between different groups of groups on grounds of religion, race, place of birth, residence, language, etc. and doing acts prejudicial to maintenance of harmony. The second one 295a of IPC deliberate and malicious acts intended to outrage religious feelings of any class by insulting its religion or religious beliefs. These are the so-called blasphemy laws, provisions governing hate speech under which Muslims and also Christians have in the past and continue to seek shelter whenever there is a public discussion or criticism of their creed in general and their prophet in particular. And the last of these section 95 criminal penal code is invoked to swiftly proscribe any publication that ever critically examine the precepts of Islam and or the words and acts of the prophet Fired by vociferous and almost always violent Muslim protests, and often pandered to by the political class. These are two examples, two books which were written, and exactly this was done. The first was Understanding Islam Through the Hadith by Sri Ram Swaroop, which was published in 1892 in the United States, but subsequently it was banned by the Delhi administration through a fiat conclusively in 1990, the Hindu version, uh, Hindi version was uh, banned, and in 1991, the English version was banned. And this was aimed at strangling, not just freedom of expression, but the freedom of scholarship itself, because this was a excellent work on uh, the theory and practice of jihad. Ram Sarup was also arrested for it on a complaint filed in 1987. This book still remains out of print. The other one is a more recent one by Raghuvansh Basin, Islam a Concept of Political World Invasion by Muslims. In 2007, on the instructions of the then Chief Minister of Maharashtra, Vilas rao Deshmukh, after many written complaints were submitted by Islamic organizations like Jamaat-e-Islami, this was also banned. And it is ironical that over 10,000 copies of this particular book has been sold worldwide, but After the second edition was published, but it still remains out of print in India. The second one, the first one. The second one, Islam: A Concept of Political World Invasion by Muslim. This is also an excellent book, but then unfortunately, I have not even found an e-version of this book. The others are at least available in e-versions. The Calcutta Quran Petition. Now, Muslims little suspected that these acts, which are their favorites. The pet provisions would be used against them one day and the tables turned on them to seek a ban on the Quran. The year was 1984. And in a letter dated July 20th, a man from Calcutta, Himanshu Kishore Chakravarti sent a letter to the office of the Secretary, Department of Home, Government of West Bengal with sensational contents. It pointed to matter contained in the Quran, which makes its publication an offense under these sections of… And the letter stated as grounds that these sections, these verses, citing 37 verses from the Quran, that these sections preach, uh, these passages uh, preach cruelty, incite violence and disturb public peace. 17 sayings that promote on the ground of religion, feelings of enmity, hatred and ill will between different religious communities of India and 31 sayings that insult other religions as also the religious beliefs of other communities. The letter demanded that all copies of the Quran in the original Arabic as well as translations be forfeited to the government in accordance with section 95 CRPC. The citations used by Chakrabarti showed that he had indeed made a very deep study. Of the Quran and he had good reason to do so. He was a refugee who had arrived from East Bengal and he had experienced firsthand the kind of inveterate hostility and hatred which Muslim majority, the Muslim majority bore towards the Hindu minorities. And also he knew that Muslim religious leaders approved and encouraged such behaviour in keeping with the highest tenets of Islam. As can be expected from a government department, he never received any acknowledgement for this and no response. So after three months on August 14, 1984, he wrote a second letter as a reminder to the Secretary, Department of Home, Government of West Bengal, along with annexures of uh, his previous letter. Six months on, even to this, he did not receive any response. However, in this period, he made an acquaintance with Chanwal Chopra, an association which would lead to a momentous plea for justice that was and still remains denied. But it is nevertheless a significant event in the Hindus fight against an offensive, violent ideology that continues to aggress upon them and larger humanity for the past 14 centuries, enjoying immunity in the name of it being the sacred beliefs of its votaries. Chandmal Chopra had himself studied the Quran in depth and having observed trends and the plight of Hindus during riots, also in neighboring Muslim country, majority countries, he saw the matter to be of great importance for public interest. And so he wrote a letter to the same Department of Government of West Bengal on March 16 1985. He drew reference to chakrabarti's previous letter and requested for necessary steps in the interest of justice, requesting a reply within seven days, failing which he would take such steps as may be advised to us. And sure enough, he also did not receive any response. And therefore, on March 29th, a writ petition was filed by him in the Calcutta High Court under Article 226 of the Indian Constitution, which came to be known as the famous Calcutta Quran petition. He was joined in this petition by one Mr. Seetal Singh, who was also an aware citizen as a co-petitioner. And the petition sought action from government of West Bengal on the same grounds that had been provided in the, these previous letters. But this time, of course, it was couched in appropriate legalese and presented through the correct procedure. The matter came up before Justice Mrs. Padma Kashtagir and after some initial postponements was listed on April 12th, 1985. And on this date, she gave directions to the respondent, which was the government of West Bengal, in this case, to file uh, an affidavit in opposition by May 17 and adjourned the matter for May 27. On April 29th, the affidavit in reply was duly filed also and the, these two lines were the main substance of the affidavit, which stated, the Holy Quran is a divine book, no earthly power can sit upon judgment on it and no court of law has jurisdiction to educate it. And that from the time of the British rule and since independence, in spite of the Indian Penal Code being in existence, there had never been such an application in any court of India. But in the meantime, Justice Kashtagir released the matter from her list. And on May 7th, the Advocate General of West Bengal requested the Chief Justice of Calcutta to assign the matter to another bench. And finally, the matter was put up before Justice Mr. Bimal Kumar Bashak to hear the petition on May 10th, 1985. A theater of the absurd followed, which is the Indian secularism. The Telegraph reported on May 9th, the Union government had decided to intervene in the writ petition in the Calcutta High Court, praying for a ban on the Quran. According to an official release, the law minister, Mr. Ashok Sen, is proceeding to Calcutta immediately for giving the necessary instructions. The government had decided to seek an outright dismissal of the petition, it also added that it is understood that the Attorney General of Government of India is also briefed to appear in the case. I mean, this was the level at which pressure was put for a petition filed in the High Court. It had clearly greatly unsettled the Indian establishment, which went into a tizzy to reclaim its secular ethos, which is an ignoble discussion, uh, display of utter lack of character and courage. On May 10th, The Telegraph reported that pressure was also being mounted by the government of West Bengal. And the Chief Minister in an address in the legislative assembly had reportedly described the filing of the writ petition as a despicable act. And in reply to Anil Mukherjee of the forward block, he stated that the matter should have been dismissed outright as the subject matter pertains to religion. The union government also came into action. They were summoned uh, by the state uh, government asking for help and the matter was raised in the Lok Sabha and the speaker Balram Jakar in his address said, this is a serious matter There is enough trouble in the country and there is no need to add anything which would stir up another conflagration. Now, this is very interesting, Jakar was not bothered about the rights or wrongs of the case. He was bothered more that there will be trouble on account of this is almost as if he is goading people to come on the streets uh, as mobs. H. R. Bhardwaj, who was the law minister, uh, Minister of State for Law, in his reply assured the MPs. When the writ petition had come to the government's notice, the government had immediately considered measures to counter it and that the government was deputing the Attorney General of Calcutta to seek dismissal of the writ petition. The telegraph reported there was a move by Muslim members of the Calcutta Bar Association to condemn Mm -hmm. Justice Kashtagir for having admitted the matter, although she denied it later on. The motion was defeated because they failed to garner enough votes. The government of West Bengal even attempted to harass the petitioners by turning over police records to fish out some pretext to use for a smear campaign against them. Not one person from India's public life stood up to ask the question, is checking for police record of someone legal or legitimate just because the person had filed a petition in the court? And all this commotion carried on while the matter was subjective That is if it had been admitted by uh, Justice Kashtagir. And this manner of impedance and harrings in the parliament actually constituted contempt of court. But in this case, the courts did not think it proper to reprimand any of these overactive legislators. But all these strains of the Indian notables to prove their secular credentials and stoutly defend the venerable Quran with all their might, failed to impress those across the border in Pakistan. And that theocratic state, the rogue nation that had all but eliminated its religious minorities and treated the remaining as non-citizens made this an occasion to pontificate on religious freedom and rights of minorities. Mr. Magbul Ahmed Khan, Pakistan's Minister of State for Religious and Minority Affairs berated India for this worst example of religious intolerance, a petition in the court. <laughs> And alleging that religion and life and property of minorities in India were unsafe and urged the Indian government to follow the example of Pakistan in ensuring freedom of religion. And not one person of note from the Indian side thought it fit to respond appropriately to this egregious nonsense from Pakistan. The Kafir was duly chastened. The chairman of the Organization of Islamic Conference, Mr. Sharifuddin Pirzada, he drew the attention of the Muslim world and asked them to react against the heinous act. He asked the government to make an official complaint to India and appealed to the Pakistani religious leaders to observe Friday as a protest day. And almost on a clue, uh, Islamists all over the Indian subcontinent had been incited and they went on a rampage. There was massive rioting, stone throwing, ransacking reported from various parts in India, Bangladesh, and Pakistan. Scenes which we saw unfold recently in the course of the CA protests, also. Uncannily similar incidents being reported in the media at that time, some of which I'll read out. The statesman reported. Uh, from Dhaka in May 12th, on May 12th, at least 12 people were killed and 100 wounded when Bangladesh police fired on the demonstration yesterday in the border town of Chepal, Nawab Ganj, 320 kilometers from here. The demonstrators in Dhaka also tried to storm the Indian High Commission when they were stopped by the police. All this sounds familiar, all this happens in every single protest. This happened recently in UK also when the Indian High Commission was stormed. Some thousand demonstration, demonstrators belonging to the fundamentalist Jamaat-e-Islami clashed with police in Delhi who opened fire in self-defense. And when the demonstrators went on rampage, they threw missiles and set a place government property. Again, very familiar. On May 10th in Delhi, at least 20,000 uh, Jamaat-e-Islami supporters spilled out on the streets after their pieties on a Friday. Rioting, arsoning, the usual stuff. On May 13th and 14th, Ranchi in Bihar, agitated Muslims marched in protest on the main thoroughfare, shouting anti government slogans, attacking shops and establishments. Kashmir was ignited with violent dis- uh, demonstrations all over the valley, which, after four years from this incident, would become the center of widespread Islamic terrorism and the Hindus of the state would be all but turned out. The Ka- Telegraph reported that protesters attempt to set a bridge on fire and stone the police. Very familiar. And in the midst of all this, the Times of India published three articles by Dr. Rafiq Zakaria in praise of the Quran, patently a command performance by concerned authorities to mollify the Muslims. Incidentally, when Sitaram Goel approached Giril Al-Jain, who was the editor of uh, chief editor of Times of India at that time, for publishing a rebuttal to Zakaria Solilukki. Jan regretted his inability to do so for reasons he said he could not reveal. So, as ram Goel summarized the response of the Indian state, the accomplices of Indian Islamic imperialism in India, communists, socialists, Nehruvians, secularists, Gandhians, were throwing all judicial proprieties and procedures to the winds in defense of Islam which they viewed as the most effective weapon, weapon against their common enemy, which is the Hindu society and culture. As these minions of the Nehruvian state went about putting their entire weight in restoring secular order after this ripple, basically the control of to restore the control of Abrahamic's ideas of supremacism, leftism, secularism, socialism, etc. Another arm of the state, the venerable relic of imperialism, the Indian judiciary got ready for its final act to close in and snuff out this little plea in the interest of justice and reason using all judicial prerogatives, knowledge, and its might. As directed by Justice Kashtagi, Chandmal Chopra at this time was busy preparing for the affidavit in reply when in the midnight between May 12th and 13th, he received an intimation. That the matter would appear to, to be mentioned, that is, the matter has to be mentioned to him on May 13th, that is the very next day, before Justice Bimal Kumar uh, uh, Chandra Bashak. Next day, when Chopra appeared in the court, Justice Bashak recalled the earlier court's directions regarding filing of affidavits and directed him to move a writ application afresh as a court application. Whatever that means in technical terms, Chopra had no alternative but to. Uh, acquires to this, but when he requested for an adjournment on the ground that he had just received a notice to be mentioned, it was turned down. And instead, with uncharacteristic alacrity, the court asked the Attorney General of India and the Advocate General of West Bengal to proceed with their arguments against the writ petition, which they also did with considerable conf- confidence, prepared as they were, they had come with several reams tucked under their arms. Chopra, in turn. Term- was completely ill-prepared and he tried his best to counter the arguments. But Justice Boschak dismissed the repetition and reserved his judgment for a later day. The judgment in the case was delivered on May 17th and was a class rendition of secular spaciousness in all its empty pomposity. But before we go into its salient points, there are two things to be mentioned in relation to it. This particular judgment made an adverse comment on Justice Padma Kashtagir for allowing the petition and having directed the filing of affidavits without going into the question whether this there was a prima facie case and the jurisdiction and power of the court to entertain it. It pronounced that the petition should have been rejected forthwith and in limine, as unworthy of its consideration as soon as it was moved. What happened was this was pounced upon by Islamists all over the country to the accompaniment of usual cops about the permanent Muslim grievances to further foment unrest and demand action against Justice Kashtagir. A notable example was from Kashmir where the Chief Minister Mr. GM Shah, upon his return from the US after a month's stay, immediately on the same day he called. Uh, for a rally in Iqbal Park in uh, Srinagar, and in an impassioned speech, he demanded action against Justice Kashtagir. And this led to an intensification of the violence, which lasted several days, even after the writ petition had been dismissed on May 13th. Sounds familiar? The other thing is that Chandmal Chopra had filed a review petition on June 18th, questioning the basis of the judgment as unsound, citing eight grounds. But in violation of all normal judicial procedure, this matter was also put up before Justice Bashak itself on June 21st. And expectedly, it was summarily dismissed, citing some trivial legal technicality without even going into the grounds which had been provided by Chopra. Now we come to the judgment. The judgment was a prolix on the profundities of Islam in India's philosophy of secularism, peppered with philosophical strains on the eternal, the unknowable and the transcendental, etc. But to be fair, on the, coming on the technicality point, from a layman's point of view, it is not possible to comment on the legality of the judgment since as per existing provisions, it may indeed be impossible to impugn a book which is accorded the status of sacred scripture cherished by a certain religious community. As Sitaram Goel said, And I quote, law has its limitations, particularly in a country where its main corpus continues to be what alien regimes, Islamic and British had devised for their own imperialist purposes. But it is important to inquire into the petition as well as the judgment from the point of view of verity and of logic. Our faculties of reason and moral sensibilities cannot be suspended on account of the belief of a section of people that the text revered by them is divinely revealed. Word and their claim about its infallibility. That would be giving into collective superstition and deliberate ignorance. But Justice Boshak's judgment was pitched exactly on this premise. The judgment may be summarized, discarding the voluminous technicalities of case law, legalese, and the periphrases, in three main conclusions. Number one, He established as the major premise, in fact, he took great pains to do so, quoting copiously from various authorities and inserting his own literary flourishes, the fundamental Muslim assumption that the Quran was the word of God. He observed in Para 24, in the faith of Muslims and according to the theory propagated, propounded in the book itself, the Quran is the revealed word of God. This postulates God and indeed the kind of God. Who has something to say to us and who takes the initiative in saying it. Religion in this view is not a human searching after God. It is God who acts and is known because and insofar as and only as he chooses to disclose himself. This view of the Quran is repeated further elaborated in the other paras mentioned which is 25 and 26. And after having accepted this claim of the Muslims, about the divine origin of the Quran, his minor premise was that if any or some of the ayats sounded obnoxious, they must have been torn out of their proper context and interpreted to mean something that they did, did not really mean. Quoting from para 29 Some passages containing interpretations of the chapters of the Quran quoted out of context cannot be allowed to dominate or influence the main aim and object of the book. And the last point in para 37, he made a very broad sweeping and wholly unsupported surmise that this book is not prejudicial to maintenance of religious harmony. And that because of the Quran, no public tranquility has ever been disturbed up to now. And there is no reason to apprehend any likelihood of such disturbance in future. Now in terms of natural justice and common sense, the only way to scrutinize. The averments in this petition should have been against an evaluation of the observable behaviour of Muslims and correlating it with the passages of the Quran. Justice Bosak, however, proceeded exactly the other way round. He instead postulated a legal concept that the Quran is sacred scripture and no court of India could sit on judgment on its contents. He however cited no relevant law by which scriptures are exempted from legal review. Nowhere in the judgment he mentions that there is any such law. What the great lengths of his elaborations ignored is that the writ petition did not gainsay this in the first place. On the contrary, it stated clearly that the Quran, and particularly its Arabic original, moves Muslims to tears and ecstasy. The central issue that the petition raised was not how Muslims hold the Quran, but the behavior pattern that it inculcated through its teachings in its adherence vis a vis the non Muslims. Secondly, the repetition did not contain any interpretation, but the precise words in the text and translated in English as they appear in a publication of an Orthodox Islamic publishing house by a translator regarded as competent by them. The language in any part of the Quran is neither ambiguous nor allegoric. They are plain and precise in every instance. In fact, the Imams, the Ulema, the Qazis and the Sufis. They have always stood for a literal and matter-of-fact acceptance of the words of the Qur'an. And any interpretation or allegoric import has been frowned upon as tawwil. Neither were the cited passages in the petition or randomly culled in an attempt to portray the text in a baleful light. The petition presented instead an exhaustive list of what is held as Allah's word, conveyed through the Prophet on the manner to look upon non-believers and the treatment to mete out on them. The fact that these sayings are scattered over 30 chapters is owing to the peculiar manner in which the Quran has been compiled describing revelations supposedly received by the prophet at different times and places and in a variety of circumstances and subjects that follow neither chronological sequence nor any thematic order. The quoted passages do not alter the quoted passages in the petition that is, did not alter or eclipse the aim of an object of the book, rather highlighted its central themes, which is apart from the prescribed handling of non-believers, how Muslims should form a militant brotherhood, which is Ummah, on the basis of uniform beliefs and behaviour. There are no other passages in the Quran which uh, abrogates or runs counter to these quoted passages. And the other part of the observation That the verses were quoted out of context would have carried greater weightage had the legal luminary given at least one example of what they know of or thought was the proper context of a particular verse as an illustration. But there was not a single such example in the judgment. But the observation about the importance of context for understanding the Quran cannot be disagreed with. It is actually true. And fortunately, the meticulous strains of the pious scholars of Islam afford us a wealth of material to determine beyond the slightest scope of doubt what exactly the context for each and every Quranic verse is. And this will also bring us to the last part of the judgment, whether looking into the context elevates the meaning of the passages cited in the writ petition in any way or extent. This cannot be assessed without looking at the contents of the Quran. And the associated body of Islamic theological works. We now address the moot point of the writ petition itself. Does indeed, as stated in the petition, and I quote, the Quran arouse in Muslims the worst communal passions and religious fanaticism which have manifested themselves in murder, slaughter, loot, arson, rape, and destruction or desecration of holy places in historical times as also in contemporary period, not only in India, but almost all over the world. This was the wording in the petition, which is so accurate that it is, I mean, it really defies logic that how could one have even overturned it. But for this, we have to delve in the content and nature of the text itself. The Quran is comprised essentially of the Wahis or revelations which Muslims believe are the literal word of God relayed to his prophet Muhammad through the angel Gabriel, which he rendered perfectly word for word for his companions to record and memorize. These revelations said to have been received at critical junctures in the course of Muhammad's career, which was from uh, 609 to 632 CE, are contained in roughly 6200 Ayats or verses spread over 114 chapters, which are called Surahs. The bulk of its material is drawn from Judeo-Christian mythos prevalent in Arabia during that time. The Quran along with the hadith, or literature containing first-hand reports from the Prophet's companions. The primary among these companions was the Prophet's child wife Aisha and his favourite and other narratives such as Abu Huraira, Anas bin Malik, Jabbar, Abu Saeed, Abu Musa, Umar, Uh, who was the second Caliph. And these uh, narrators, they report actions and sayings of the Prophet considered as Sunnah. That is practice of the uh, Prophet regarded as canonical and co-equal with injunctions proffered in the Quran. Not all of what Prophet did is considered Sunnah. For instance, the bloodless takeover of Mecca is not considered Sunnah. But the massacre of the Banu Kuraiza, that is considered sunnah. His uh, taking nine wives is not considered sunnah, however, his keeping concubines is considered sunnah. And in fact, at a later point of time, Akbar had also used this uh, provision to legalize his Hindu wives (laughs) because it was somehow not uh, going down well with them to be illegal wives. Anyway. The fundamental message of the Quran is contained in the concept of Jihad, the complete phrase for which is Jihad fi Sabilillah or Jihad in the way of Allah. With the collapse of Christianity in the West, modern rationalism and humanism have become universal and in the face of which exponents of Jihad who earlier made no bones about what they stood for have now been forced to develop a set of apologetics to camouflage the true import of the term. Here, we will attempt to expose it in its full implication using the most authentic Islamic sources. Now, is Jihad really a metaphorical concept? One of the most commonly offered apologists explanations for Jihad is that it has two variants, Jihad bi al-Saif, which is holy uh, war by the means of sword. And also Jihad al-Nafs, which means literally a struggle with one's soul against one's own baser instincts. While it is true that both these variations exist, the former is vehemently advocated and the latter is considered much inferior in comparison. And the proposition that the term Jihad holds in the Quran itself is of a perpetual war for the destruction of all non-Islamic religions the world over. And this is the comprehensive meaning of the word Jihad bi Sabi the following verse of the Quran makes this clear. So let those fight in the cause of Allah who sell the life of this world for the hereafter. Whoso fights in the way of Allah, be he slain or victorious, on him we shall bestow a vast reward. This is from Surah 4, An Nisa, the women, Ayat 74. In another verse of the same chapter, it is made clear that jihad that Allah beckons a mujahid to is an unremitting. Armed war and nothing else. Hast thou not seen unto whom it was said, Withhold your hands and establish worship and pay the poor due, which is the zakat. But when fighting was prescribed for them, behold, a party of them fear mankind even as they fear Allah, or with greater fear they say, O oh Lord, why hast thou ordained fighting for us? If only thou wouldst give us respite for a while. I say, the comfort of this world is scant. The hereafter will be better for them that wardeth of evil. Now, it puts out very clearly that they are supposed to fight with physical, physically. The context of this verse brings out their meaning only more clearly. This verse descended for the instruction of those Muslims who had been pleading against bloodshed and wanting respite from the duty of engaging in murderous confrontations and the historical episode related to this is the, that is important. The first half of the verse refers to a period before the prophet's migration from Mecca to Medina, which is known as Hijra, when the number of Muslims was very small. Allah at that time in the Mecca period felt that it is better to restrain the excitable warmongers within this band as, as Muslims were too weak in Mecca. If we accept the traditional date of the surah to which this whole verse belongs, in its second part, it relates to the time after the Battle of Uhud, which happened in 1625. We will shortly go over a timeline of the Islamic history. 625, I beg your pardon. When, after a crushing reverse dealt by the Meccan pagans, the deflated Muslims longed to settle down to a peaceful existence in Medina, which was known as Atrib at that time. Since the Quran does not deal with any specific topic systematically. The concept of jihad is best understood as it developed along the career of Muhammad. Because you see that within a safe verse, it showed two different situations. Muslims see Muhammad as an exemplary human being and taking cues from his life and work. The same pattern is enacted in every conflict since 1400 years that the Muslims find themselves, or rather, conflicts which they create since that is the essential aim of Jihad. Now a short capsule in history is due. 1570, Muhammad is born to the Quraysh tribe of Arabs in Mecca in the Hejaz region which is to the west of Arabia. In 1610, he received his first revelation from Allah through the angel Gabriel in a cave in Saudi Arabia. And around 1613, he began to preach in Mecca and gathered some friends, uh, some followers, mostly among his friends and family. And he also enlisted some Meccan desperadoes among them. Initially, they practiced their faith secretly, but slowly, as Muhammad gained more confidence, he proclaimed the new faith and began to preach this openly. But it was not long before he met with stiff resistance from Meccans at his incensing sermons criticizing the beliefs of the Meccan pagans and decrying their gods. As his manner of preaching became more and more offensive, Meccans united in hostility towards him. And this was what forced the flight to Medina in May 1622. From that point on, it came to be known as Madina al-Nabi, which is the city of the prophet. And the year of this migration, which is known as Hijra, is the year from which Muslims begin the reckoning of their calendar al-Hijri or the year of the flight. And here's the timeline for the reference. We will not go into all of these here, but it lists some of the important Ghazwats or uh, the Jihadic Wars undertaken by the Prophet. And this is what will give us an idea about the context of the passages of the Quran when we refer to them now and then. So let me just Quickly go through over this. Sixteen between sixteen twenty-two and sixteen twenty-three, there were seven expeditions which were t- undertaken by the prophet attacking Meccan uh, caravans. And in sixteen twenty-three, in the raid of Nakla, I beg your pardon. I'm saying sixteen again. In six twenty-three, in the raid of Nakla, there was the first bloodshed in the cause of Iran uh, of uh, Islam. When they attacked a Meccan caravan and they killed a person and took two people. Uh, as as captives. Then their first major battle, which was the Battle of Badr, which was the first full-fledged battle against the the Quraysh. And this was followed by the expulsion of the Banu Kainuka, which is the first Jewish tribe to be evicted evicted from Mecca. We will go into this in a little more detail in the subsequent passages. But following this in 1625 in the Battle of Uhud, the Meccan pagans gave them a bad thrashing. And this is the period to which the previous verse refers. Now without going into all of these battles, let me just go through the how the concept of jihad developed over the prophet's career and then we will refer to these battles. Now, basically the development of of the uh, concept of Jihad can be divided into three stages. These three stages were put out by Dr. Sohas Majumdar in his book, Jihad, the Unending uh, Battle in 1994, and in which he uh, specifies these three stages. And the first of which, which I spoke about was the Meccan stage, which was a stage of covert Jihad, the tenor of Allah's revelations in this particular stage from 1609 to 1622, before he undertook that uh, Hijrah, at this time the Muslims were still a minority in Mecca and they did not have had, they hadn't made such a headway in gaining more cons, uh, followers and that's why the tone of the revelations is conciliatory. It preaches accommodation of other people's beliefs. And some of the verses from Quran from this stage which convey this are this particular verse which is Surah 22 Al-Kafirun, say O disbelievers, I do not worship what you worship, nor are you worshippers of what I worship, nor will I be a worshipper of what you worship, nor will you be a worshipper of what I worship, for you is your religion and for me is mine. So what Muslims usually do is they quote such verses and say, oh Islam is all about tolerance but actually, this marks a particular stage in the Prophet's career. An important feature of the Muslim stance in this particular stage is of victimhood. Pronouncements for waging war are marked by a tone of apology and uncertainty of how they would be received. And one of the messages from which this can be seen is Surah 22, Al-Hajj, Ayats 30 to 49. Sanction is given unto those who fight, because they have been wronged. And Allah is indeed able to give them victory, those who have been driven from their homes unjustly, only because they believed in that our Lord is Allah. For had it not been for Allah's repelling, some men by means of others, cloisters and churches and oratories and mosques, wherein the name of Allah is mentioned, would assuredly have been pulled down." This. Concern for churches and cloisters is actually very interesting because just a few years on when he started conquering the neighboring areas, this, with full gusto he destroyed all these churches and cloisters. Now there's a fervent insistence on the necessity of war representing Muslims as a beleaguered people whose only assurance of safety lay in taking up arms. Calling for jihad in tones of injured innocence. Surah 2, Al Baqarah, the Haifa, which says, Warfare is enjoined upon you, though it is hateful unto you. But it may happen that ye hate a thing that is good for you, and perhaps ye love a thing that is bad for you, and Allah knoweth while ye know not. Allah's concern for cloisters and church, because all these words, it is said, were related by Allah's uh also turned out turns out to be a cruel joke. And uh when actually Muhammad uh conquered a lot of places in this Hejaz area, he had not only churches and cloisters, he has gone on a spree of destroying all temples in gay abandon. And Muslim armies would fan out further afield in other parts, destroying all signs of pagan worship. This is the stock argument which is advanced by Muslims in the past century against other people's places of worship saying that their own places of worship are somehow endangered by the former. Sounds familiar? Babri Masjid. Moreover, at this time, when this revelation was received, there were only two mosques which were in no way uh, threatened by any apprehension of attack. Now this verse which also belongs to this Meccan stage is very important because it contains an incredible piece of sophistry which Muslims usually use to justify their aggression feigning victimhood. We are seeing this now being played out. This verse refers to the Raid of Nakla which we just uh, saw, it was the seventh raid which was carried out. and. Uh, in this raid, what the prophet had done was he had sent two of his people to spy on the Meccan caravan. And in the month of Rajab, which was October 16 to 23, 623 at Nakla between Mecca and Altaif in the Hijazi region. And these two observers, they saw that this Meccan caravan was loaded with riches and they attacked. The problem was this was still the, in that region, what is referred to as the holy months. There are four holy months in Islam, which is Qadha, Hija, Muharram, and Rajab. And this was the month of Rajab. There was still one day to go, and yet these two followers they could not hold themselves, and they attacked and they killed one person, which I told you about. Now, obviously, this was a big scandal, and the Quraysh also spent it out, saying they see the Muslims have murdered a person in the holy months when there is a universal pact that no one can kill anyone. Initially. Muhammad was against this and he even denounced these two people. But then again, Allah came to his aid with this opportune revelation. They questioned thee, O Muhammad, with regard to warfare in the sacred month. Say, Warfare therein is a great transgression. But to turn men away from the way of Allah and to disbelieve in him and in the inviolable place of worship, which is Kaaba, to expel people thence is greater with Allah and persecution is worse than killing. So he clearly justified every sort of killing in the holy months. Now we go to another part of this particular story. So we see what he is trying to build is a story of victimhood. He is claiming that the Meccan pagans persecuted him. But What exactly happened? This is laid down very clearly in a commentary by one of the most acclaimed Sunni exegetes of the Quran called Al Thabari. This uh, exegesis describes this incident in considerable detail and quoting uh, Ibn Hamayyad Salman Ibn Ashik, it says what actually happened, Ibn Ishaq. The Messenger of God proclaimed God's message openly and declared Islam publicly to his tribesmen. This describes the stage in Mecca. When he did so, they did not withdraw from him or reject him in any way, as far as I have heard, until he spoke of their gods and denounced them. When he did this, they took exception to it and united in opposition and hostility to him. So what has happened? Now, what happens in India every day, there are attacks after attacks, someone's a shop is looted, someone's girl is lifted, some, uh, sometimes uh, property is set up fire. there are rapes, there are killings. And when on one occasion there is a retaliation, then what happens? Oh, we are the poor minorities. This is exactly what was happening at that time in Mecca. In another place, in the same, this thing it gives details that what happened after this was it gives a illustration of what exactly is happening in india that's why i'm going over this so when uh, they did not stop uh, offending the meccan pagans they decided that they will go to abu talib and speak to him about muhammad because they feared they were showing consideration even here so what they say is let us go to abu talib Who's Muhammad's uncle, and speak to him about Muhammad, so that he will give us justice against him and order him to desist from reviling our gods, and we will leave him to his God. For we fear that this old man may die and we may do something which the Arabs will reproach us for and say that they let him alone until his uncle died, and then they laid their hands on him. So even there they were being very considerate, that they should not say, Okay, and they were being considered only till his uncle died. So that is why they approached him and tried to. You know, broach the topic with Muhammad. What happened after that? Abu Talib was actually very weak and he could not really (coughs) raise his voice against uh, Muhammad, and Muhammad's behavior continued. So, this is what happened. After that, they again went to Abu Talib and said, we have never seen the like of what we have endured from this man. He has derided our traditional values, abused our forefathers and reviled our religion, caused division amongst us and insulted our gods. We have endured a great deal from him. This actually gives quite a different picture of the one which was portrayed by Muslims about their persecution and expulsion from Mecca. In truth, it was Muhammad who had antagonized his tribe by mocking their beliefs. and. When Muhammad would not cease his offensive diatribes, the Quraysh again went to uh, Abu Talib and then finally warned him off before the expulsion took place. We hold you to forbid your nephew to attack us, but if you, but you did not do so. By God, we can no longer endure this vilification of our forefathers, this derision of our traditional values, and this abuse of our gods. Either you restrain him, or we shall fight both of you over this until one side or the other is destroyed. So this was the final showdown between the Meccans. But how Muhammad portrays it, how the Muslims portray it even till date. In all the scriptures, they say, Oh, we are the persecuted people. And this persecution drama is a never ending drama. They repeatedly offend and they repeatedly justify it by saying, Okay, we were being. What happened in the CA protests? What happened in the Babri, uh, in the Gujarat riots? What happened in the Nagar riots? What happened in the Saharanpur riots? It was always, always, always take any riot over the last. 300 years, which is actually the uh, dateline when the modern type of riots have been happening. In all of them, the offense is always only one party, which is the Muslims. But needless to say, when the Meccans responded in kind, Muslims claimed that they were being persecuted. Muhammad's migration from Mecca to Medina in in 622 is made much of including even a lamentation of being denied participation in the idolatrous worship of Kaaba. Sounds familiar? They complain when they are not allowed into Hindu festivals, garbas. The actual act of aggression, the unprovoked spilling of innocent blood, is covered up most sanctimoniously. An important concept of this stage of jihad is takiyya or concealing the true intent of Islam. This is a classic verse which conveys what takiyya is. Let not the believers take disbelievers for their friends in preference to believers. Whoso doeth that hath no connection with Allah unless it be that ye but guard yourselves against them, taking as it were security. Now, typically, Sunnis claim that Takiyah is not a part of the Sunni doctrine, it belongs to the Shias. But this again is a deception. This is itself a Takiyah. This itself is a Takiyah, exactly. This is. This practice of deception to advance the cause of Islam is very much accepted and mainstream in Sunni doctrine as well, though not known with the same name as it is known among the Shias. And though Sunnis love to beat Shias with this stick, it is formalized in their uh, texts also with exact references to incidents. It is very well elaborated and legitimate in the Hadith notably Sahih Bukhari, which is the primary uh, uh, source of uh, Muslim uh, practice. Apart from scores of other uh, Sunni sources uh, known as Tataku Tukatan, and they all have the same uh, root as al One of them is, is the commentary of Umar ibn Kathir, who wrote in his Tafsir on Quran. Tafsir is a commentary, Tafsir al-Quran al-Azim. In this case, such believers who need to protect themselves are allowed to show friendship outwardly, but never inwardly. He quotes one of Muhammad's direct companions, Fatal Bari. We smile in the face of some people, although our hearts curse them. Now he is also a Sunni authority, this is Ibn Kathir. Now after this first period passed, in 622, he migrated to Medina. This is the stage when the overt jihad started, and the manner of advocating jihad also gets more forceful, more bloodthirsty and rapacious. He received a king's welcome in Medina from the aboriginal tribes of Medina known as the Ansar, who sympathized with the Muslims taken in by their stories of being victims of persecution by the Meccan pagans. The Abyssinian king Negus had also previously harbored Muslims in his territory as refugees who were escaping from the Meccan pagans. This was followed by the establishment of a pact which is known as the Constitution of Medina between the Muslims, the Ansar, and various Jewish tribes of Yathrib or Medina to regulate the matters of governance of the city as well as the extent and nature of intercommunity relations. And one of the key conditions of this pact was boycotting the Quraysh, abstinence from extending any kind of support to them or assistance and to assist one another when they were attacked. Now, this is important because Mohammed used this pact as an excuse for, ex- uh, uh, for excluding uh, expelling the Jews from Medina. Muhammad had actually hoped that this large population of Jews would confirm his prophethood since most of what he preached was derived from the Jewish lore, But all he received from them was ridicule and contempt, and it came to a stage when he stood to lose credibility even among his own existing followers. And then he be- that was the time he began to resent them and looking for ways to show them as renegades who had been corrupted from the path of Abraham in order to strengthen his own claim of being Allah's two representatives. We find that he was also at that time sending delegations to the uh, Abyssinian king. And he was trying to build a, a collaboration of the monotheists. The only hindrance in this was the Macan pagans who unfortunately were his own tribe. And then the Muslims showed their true colors as the poor victims of persecution suddenly started intimidating and violently attacking the Jews, just as poor innocent minorities in India do. Muhammad in the meantime also started to attack Meccan caravans in order to build his resources for the nascent Islamic State. And Allah's messages also accordingly changed, to suited to this new requirement. One of the strongest Jihad verses comes, was revealed at this stage, which is Surah 9, Ayat 5, Al-Tawbah. When the sacred months have passed, slay the idolaters wherever ye find them, and take them, besiege them, and prepare for them each ambush. But if they repent and establish worship and pay the poor due, then leave them free. Another verse which minces no words in what exactly Muhammad's Jihad stood for is this one. It is not for any prophet to have captive until he hath made slaughter in the land. He desire the lure of this world, but Allah desireth for you the hereafter. Now again, the background of this particular verse is very important. This revelation came to him in the course of the Battle of Badr. In the Battle of Badr, which was the first successful campaign of the Muslims, they they made a lot of captives and a proposal was mooted by Abu Bakr uh, to spare them in lieu of ransom. They were the Quraysh idolaters and Prophet at that time, although there were suggestions to slaughter all of them, he took Abu Bakr's suggestion. And this particular verse is portrayed in the Quran as a reproof from Allah that why did you spare them since they're idolaters you should have murdered them although there are verses now there are a whole lot of such verses at least but these are some of the main verses which convey the exact context which is being talked about in the Calcutta Quran petition that is why they have been put out here then there is this verse famous verse which uh, from which the sanction for Jazia is derived. Although this is uh, this comes in the Al-Tawbah, this also comes in the Al-Tawbah, it's not in the earlier verses. This also comes in Al-Tawbah and this is the verse which says, fight against such of those who have been given scriptures as they believe, not in Allah, nor the last day and forbid not that which Allah hath forbidden by his messenger and follow not the religion of truth until they pay tribute, which is jaziah readily being brought low. Now this particular verse applies only to those of the scriptures. It does not apply to Hindus. Now there is still till date a uh, controversy among these uh, Muslim scholars whether Hindus deserved to be given the status of jazia, of, um, of dhimis, uh, which are the pairs of jazia. According, uh, it was a Sunni doctrine which is what, uh, uh, sorry, uh, the, the Hanafi school of law which actually qualified them but it is still by the, particularly by the Shia schools it is still denied. In fact, there is a famous conversation, there is a small introduction here, um, uh, between Alauddin Dean and his Kazi where he asked this very question, what should I do with the captured Hindus? Mm-hmm. And uh, he answers that, he says, so uh, uh, my predecessors have allowed them to live on payment of jizya. Mm-hmm. And the uh, Qazi informs him that this is wrong. In fact, you must slaughter all of them. And that's uh, part of the conversation recorded, I think, in Tabakat in a That's correct. That's correct. In fact, there is another uh, reference in uh, this particular book, which asks Jalaluddin Khilji, that why are you being so lenient with them? You should also know, I'm sure you would know that when Timur attacked India, his premise was since he was a Muslim attacking a Muslim country, which fell under the Caliphate, which was also giving tribute to the Caliphate. His excuse was that these people are being lenient to the Kafirs and uh, Jalaluddin Khilji in this particular book, he has been quoted. And he says when people question him, he was a typical Muslim and he has also destroyed temples and all that, but he was a person who was genuinely uh, generous in spirit, so he had allowed a lot of Hindu practices, which are typically banned uh, by even the Hanif law. The, even payers of jazia had a lot of restrictions placed on them. They could not um, uh, take um, horse carriages. They could not wear fine clothes. They could not play music. They well, a whole lot of this thing. And of course, they could not take out the religious processions. But Jalaluddin Kilji allowed all this. And in fact, there's a famous uh, quote by this particular Barani uh, itself who says that uh, these are the dark days of Islam. Because in Delhi, uh, you can see, hear the calls of Vedas in uh, Vedas in the uh, Darul Islam. So, Amir Kusu also lamented the state of affairs. He also lamented at length. In fact, I'm surprised that he's always. He, uh, called this thing, but then of course, these are facts which will combine by out of what the details of the Delhi Sultanate were, just how bad it was. Actually, it was not too good ever, however, there were ups and downs depending on the nature of the king sometimes. And but even the slightest concession that always got the mullahs that raised their hackles because that is what is laid down in the Quran. Mullahs are not wrong, they are. Completely well versed with every source document of the Islamic people. But uh, the Quran is very clear about the ultimate object about jihad, which is to Islamize the whole of humanity. There is no concession to be made in this, and any concession which is made is only because of exigencies. Sorry, this particular quote which I was wanting to make. So that is why at that time the quote, uh, what Jalaluddin's told the uh, clerics was that I cannot help it. How do I control a land which is armed to its teeth? And this gives the realistic situation. There was no composite culture. At each point people were fighting. And why were we able to fight? Because we had the sword in our hands. Every house had people who could fight. When Timur came, he was Fed up by the kind of resistance which was put every house, uh, I mean, they put their women, uh, they were always ready to uh, burn themselves, and every house put up such a stiff resistance that he was fed to the neck and he never came back. The same thing happened with every invader. When Aurangzeb he used to go to destroy temples, there are details of how the Kafirs resisted. They did not give it to, uh, give to it easily. When the Mughal officers would come to exact the Jazia, they would beat them and send them back. And then Gandhi happened to the civilization of India and he took the sword from Hindus saying that, go get killed. This is the highest merit for you. And this has been our tragedy for 70 years. We have been disarmed and we are on our way to destruction if we do not see where our context. We have to see 700 years, not 70 years. Secularism, Gandhiism is India's death. Anyways, that is my personal conclusion. Let me just quickly wind up. So the Quran is very clear, and this comes out in this particular verse very clearly. Count ye the slaking of a pilgrim's thirst and tendance of the inviolable place of worship as equal to the worth of him who believeth in Allah and the last day, and striveth in the way of Allah. Those who believe and have left their homes and striven with their wealth and their lives in the way of Allah are of much greater worth in Allah's sight, so it is clearly laid out that. This uh, Jihad al-Saif is the ultimate uh, kind of Jihad, which is greatly uh, revered among the Muslims. Now this verse clearly lays out the worth of the mujahid also in the sight of Allah is greater than any other contribution of any Muslims. That's why take it that every Muslim at some or the level is a mujahid and among them the Biggest of is one who's actually taken up arms and fighting for it. They have absolutely no association of any ignominy with terrorists. And that is why there is such a lot of sympathy for terrorists. There are many verses with sanction. These are some of the other things, I mean, which there's no time to go into it in much details. But uh, there's another concept which is known as ganima. Ganima is the concept of plunder. The violation of enslavement of women, children of unbeliever, unbelievers, and enjoying of kafir uh, women. This is laid down very clearly in the uh, Quran as something which is lawful and pure and sanctioned. In the initial phase, when the early Muslims carried out raids, the tenor is more tentative about enjoying the plunder and it says in a very weak sort of voice Eat ye the spoils of war, they are lawful and pure. But again, the message as uh, they go to the Medina phase, the message gets more purposeful, more descriptive after successive victories. And Allah brought those of the people of Scripture who supported the Meccans from their strongholds and cast panic into their hearts. This refers to the Jews, because He accused the Jews, the expulsion Jews of Jews was on the basis of this uh, accusation uh, that they had helped the Meccan pagans in all these attacks, which happened, fights which happened. Uh, with the Meccan pagans, some ye slew, ye made captive some, and he caused you to inherit their lands and their houses and their wealth. But this clearly indicates that the booty includes captured Kafir women. This is Surah Nisa, which says, and all married women are forbidden to unto you, save those captives whom you, your right hand possesses. Uh, a short note on this also, uh, Muslims very frequently say that this particular verse, Quran verse by uh, 24 Surah Nisa, uh, this also specifies in the very next lines that even a captive woman must not be enjoyed without uh, you know, properly marrying her and giving her the due which is supposed to be given. But here it is important to see that here is where the Sunnah kicks in. Muhammad, the way there are three or four women, the way he dealt with them. One is Safia, uh, mm-hmm. one of the women of Banu Nadir, mm-hmm. Maria the Copt, and Rehana, who's from Banu uh, Kureza. He did not m- marry, marry them, Sorry? But he married her later. Well, he was a Yeah, but uh, he married her later on. Um, and he, she also counts as one of the mothers of the believers. So I've left that. But then there are many he kept captives. He later married her, but these are the people he did not marry. And uh, there is still, therefore, a controversy on whether Maria the Copt, for instance, was married to uh, Prophet or not. And this is elaborated with a great deal of uh, detail in the hadith, the Sira literature, which bring out the meaning with greater clarity. Now the conclusive stage of Jihad. Now, once he had made himself strong enough, he felt confident enough to proceed towards regaining Mecca, which was his final. Initially, uh, we will see in the timeline that what he did was he, uh, because Meccan pagans were still very powerful, he, uh, proce- uh, uh, he proposed to enter Mecca uh, posing as a pilgrim. But later on, uh, and at that time, this is called the famous uh, excursion to Hudavia. He camped at a place called Hudavia. He made a pact with the Meccan pagans, but two years on, he reneged on the pact and he entered Mecca. He captured one of their leaders, and this is how I mean there was this blood bloodless takeover of uh, takeover of Mecca. What he had done was he had forced the leader to accept uh, uh, Islam. But anyways. Uh, after the prophet took over mecca he ordered a large scale destruction of idol temples these are some of the verses which refer to destruction of idol temples and it is said unto the angels assemble those who did wrong assemble those who did wrong together with their wives and what idols they used to worship instead of allah and lead them to the path of hell and lo this day they both are sharers in the doom this deal we with the guilty So thus deal we with the guilty. Then there's another uh, verse which shows how Ibrahim destroyed idols. It's a very long one, I will not really read it. But uh, the net uh, result is that he destroyed all the temples in the Hera region and there are many such idols which decry idol worship, and uh, they describe in detail the restriction of uh, idols in Mecca. Mecca. But what he did not do was, he did not immediately convert the Meccans to Islam. Two years later, he sent two of his uh, generals towards Mecca, because he was at that time in the intervening period from uh, 1630 to 1631. Uh, I beg your pardon, 630 to 631. Uh, he was b- busy building up his state, but he sent these two generals. And this is the time when the famous immunity verses come to him. And this is very important in the context of India. Initially he had decided to spare all the idolaters, but these immunity verses are revealed to him and he sends a, a, a messenger to these generals who had he, he had sent ahead. And in that uh, message, he declares immunity from Allah to keep any kind of uh, uh, pact with the idolaters or any kind of obligation towards them. Freedom from obligation from Allah and his messenger to Abu Bakr, who was headed towards Mecca, towards those of the idolaters with whom ye made treaty. Travel, O idolaters freely. In the land for four months. Muhammad had given them four months to just ship out or convert. And know that he cannot escape Allah and Allah will confound the disbelievers. This was that after four months it is either convert or die. And a proclamation from Allah and His Messenger to all men on the day of the greater pilgrimage that Allah is free from obligation to idolaters and so is His Messenger. Now comes its relevance in the Indian context. These verses of Surah Tawbah that refer to the stage after the takeover of Mecca indicates a sort of abdication of the Islamic State's responsibility from law and order exhorting Muslims to slay idolaters wherever you find them. It contains many provocative verses which directly seem to incite Muslims to riots. One of these verses is this one, go forth light armed and heavy armed and strive with your wealth and your lives in the way of Allah. This is quoted many times in the Friday prayers when Muslims are exhorted to come out and start to whatever they have in their hands. However, there is a technicality in this that one can engage in jihad only when an imam gives out a call. Now in the prophets period, the imam was the prophet himself and in the subsequent period any uh, imam who was lawfully. Constituted by uh, to Imamhood, which is the successive uh, lineage of Imams, and thereafter, I mean, in countries where particularly which are not really Darul Islam, or rather they are Darul Islam, but they are not uh, non-Arab lands, such Imamhood rested with the Emperor or the Sultan or the Pasha. This was the case in Muslim states. However and what is this when an imam gives out a call there are two kinds of compulsory duties which are uh, two kinds of duties there is jihad is described in two ways when an imam gives a call it is a compulsory duty for all able bodied muslims to come out now can you correlate to the friday prayers what happens in the friday prayers this is called farzi ain and there is a farzi Kifaya, which goes on on a regular basis, it can be the active jihad can be left to other people until the imam gives the call. Meanwhile, they carry in their little ways, all contributing to the cause of Islam. Now, again, the justification which Muslims give is there is no mention in the Prophet's sunnah about religious riots following these exhortations from the Prophet. So, uh, that means that they are not as harmful as they are made out. But in this context, it is important to understand the uh, meaning of uh, the concept of Darul-Islam and darul Haq. Now, in Darul-Islam, all the scriptural provisions, the power of the state, the calls for extermination of infidels, where there is already an Imam present that is inherent, that is manifest. In non-Muslim countries, like in India, where there is a large body of Muslims, it is this context in which the immunity verses come in play. Who is a qualified imam in India to give out such a call? Now the answer to is any person with any requisite Islamic qualification can give out this call. And this is the reason after Friday prayers so frequently we see any person who gives a sermon, any imam who gives a sermon in any mosque, it can be a village mosque, a city mosque, he has the power to give that call for jihad and this is the reason we frequently see these acts of violence. It is so frequent in India almost. There are some cities where the Muslims are 30 to 40%. It happens almost every Friday. At one point of time, it used to happen in Kanpur. Every Friday, from, because my was brought up in a military camp, there used to be flag marches, uh, the trucks going out on every Friday. At one point of time, this was actually a regular features. It still happens. It is underreported and now we have become aware and we have started reporting. But then this call can be given in India by any Muslim who, is qualified to preach Islam. Some examples in this I would like to cite. Mopla riots, 1920, which Sir talked about earlier. This was an offshoot of the Khilafat movement. And in this case, the call was pronounced by the Ali brothers by Hasrit Mohani and the very venerable portrait of secularism, Maulana Abul Galla Azad. And that is why Gandhi called them the God fearing Moplaws. In the second case, the great Calcutta killings of 1946. I have not put these incidents there, I'm just reading them out. Consequence for a call for jihad was given by Muhammad Usman, the mayor of Calcutta. Now these are not declared or authorized imams, but they are people, they're representative of the Muslims. And actually, what happens is in riots is this that anyone in the neighborhood can give a call for it. And that is the reason the non-Muslim community communities are so much at risk. In fact, the risk is more in, in countries like India. And uh, the exact content of the call which was given by Muhammad Usman was this. It was in the month of Ramzan that open war between Muslims and Kafirs. This was the exhortation that he had given on that particular day. It was the month of Ramzan that open war between Muslims and Kafir started in full swing. It was in this month that we entered victorious in Mecca and wiped out the idolaters. By Allah's will, the All India Muslim League has selected the selfsame month of Ramzan to start its jihad for realizing Pakistan. Jihad for realizing Pakistan. CA protest is jihad for cutting out slices of India. Every single Muslim riot is a call for jihad. The third one, the Holocaust of Noah Khali. This was also a call for a full fledged Jihad. In this case, the call came from Gholam Sarwar, a Muslim MLA. And although the exact contents of the call are not available, Judge Simpson who was uh, uh, investigating the case, he wrote in his report, large scale conversion of Hindus to Islam by application of force in village after village happened. In many instances, upon the refusal of the menfolk to embrace Islam, their women were confined and converted under duress. Babu rajendra Lal uh, Roy Choudhury, president of the Noakhali Bar Association, fended off the mob from his terrace with his rifle for an entire day and night. The next day, the mob attacked again and rajendra Lal Roy Choudhury's severed head was presented to Golam Sarwar on a platter. And his two daughters were given as gurdon to two of his trusted lieutenants. All these jihads waged by Muslims had the usual accompaniments of indiscriminate slaughter, rape, and loot. He has, of course, gone in details in several previous talks. And the last part: who in India is present fighting this war? In what ways is it being played? This is an emphatic statement personally coming from me. Every single Muslim is a fighter in the cause of jihad. Please understand this. Educated, uneducated, a traditionalist or a modernist, a devout or a liberal, a believer or an atheist, each one of them is engaged in jihad. This jihad is enacted in every single action of Muslims. All their choices, political opinion, the causes that they take up, the humanisms that they appeal for. Why do you think Muslims are so concerned about Rohingyas? It is the cause of Islam, their convictions, their biases, the opinions that they perpetuate. Every act of speech is only for the cause of Islam. Every act by a Muslim is jihad. Even Muslims who are unaware of this theoretical basis of Islam, they replicate these acts of believers and help along the cause of Islam through a learned behavior, ideas and tendencies absorbed by association, by uh, by observation and by affiliation, communal affiliation. The Assam uh, enumeration, this thing. They're all victims, irrespective that a majority of the people who were found to be illegal were Hindus, Muslims go on. I personally know of a case where a Muslim lawyer, an Assamese is Muslim lawyer, very friendly with Hindus. He goes to our Durga pujas and everything. He's fighting cases for these uh, Muslims, illegals over there. Not a single Hindu case has he taken up. Why? Because he's doing jihad. These people, they vote regressively, they foment victim mentality and discontent and nurse sympathies for terrorists and subversionists, advance justification for them and are the peaceful front which hides the rividity of Islam. It's alibi to turn away accusing fingers. All Muslims are active or passive, direct or indirect, overt or covert, conscious or unconscious agents of Islam. The small levers in the watch that make it tick everything is coded to be in perfect sync with the blueprint of Islam. And finally, I finish with this quote of Sita Ram which I like very much. India has always been and remains the citadel of the most bigoted and bloodthirsty zealotry of Islam. It's particularly important because many times we say, oh, Indian Muslims are more gentle. This is absolutely untrue. The historical reasons for this, why it is so, the main reason may be told. Islam in India has been what it has been because India has continued to stare at Islam as its greatest failure. Islam in India has never been able to relax as it could not do in other countries which it converted completely. And it will not relax till Hindus learn to knock out its ideological fangs which is rooted in the Quran. Thank you so much.